you know, it doesn't matter if it's your car keys or a loved one's birthday or the password to that bank account, it's almost never a good thing to forget something. It really usually pays off to remember, and you can really look no further than the current winner of Jeopardy, who's, I think, made over a million dollars so far, and he's won for, I think, 14 consecutive days now. It really almost always is better to remember than to forget. Even in God's word, we see that time and time again. God tells the children of Israel, remember your bondage in Egypt and remember how I led you out with an outstretched arm. In Ecclesiastes, we're told to remember our creator in the days of our youth. And also, when you think about the New Testament, even something as foundational as the Lord's Supper, we partake of the Lord's Supper, and Jesus said when we do that, we're doing that in remembrance of him. It's almost always advisable to remember. It's almost never a good idea to forget. But there are one or two exceptions to that, and I'm reminded of the words of the great theologian Groucho Marx, who said, I've never met a face that I have forgot, but in your case, I'll be happy to make an exception. All joking aside, there actually are times where it pays to remember. And that's really what we're going to be looking, excuse me, where it pays to forget. And that's what we're actually going to be looking at in today's passage of Scripture. So if you have your Bible, I would invite you to turn to Philippians chapter 3. And we're going to be primarily in verses 12 and 13. Philippians 3, 12 and 13. This is what the Apostle Paul says under the inspiration of, of the Holy Spirit. Not that I have already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. When we jump in today, I want you to just start by looking at verse 12. I want to draw your attention to what the Apostle Paul says. He basically starts with a denial. Verse 12 of Philippians 3, he says, not that I have already obtained this. Paul is saying, there is something I have not yet obtained, something that is my goal that has not yet been realized, at least not completely and whenever you're reading through scripture, this is just a helpful way to understand the word of God. If you ever come to a passage or a verse and you're really wondering, what is this verse actually saying? It seems a bit confusing. One of the best things you can do is look at the few verses leading up to your passage in question and look at the few verses coming after the passage in question. And when we do that, we just go up to verse 10 of chapter 3. We see what the this of verse 12 is. Philippians 3, verse 10, Paul says that I may know him, that is Christ, and he goes on to describe that by saying the power of Christ's resurrection and sharing in his sufferings and becoming like him in his death. Verse 12 begins with Paul saying, listen, I have not yet obtained this, namely knowing Christ fully. And I have to make a confession to you, I've read this passage of scripture probably dozens of times, and every time I've read this passage of scripture, 
here is sort of what I have implied Paul was saying. I have understood Paul to be saying the following. I thought this is what he was saying. Verse 13, I forget what lies behind, namely my past failures, sins, shame, you name it. My past failings and sins, that's what I am forgetting and leaving behind so that I can strain forward to what lies ahead. For whatever reason, whenever I've read this passage, that's sort of what I have filled in into the text, which is always a bad idea. You always want to let the text speak for itself. You never want to take something that we're thinking and sort of press it into the word of God. But that's how I've done it for some reason for many years now. I've assumed Paul's saying, I forget my past sins. I forget my past failures, lest I become discouraged and given over to despair. And to be sure, God's word does encourage us time and time again to not morbidly dwell on our past sins, to not morbidly dwell on our past failings. There is passages of scripture that you can find that will tell you it is a good idea to not dwell there. But that's not today's passage. No, this passage of scripture, I believe, is saying something much different. First, I want you to consider what Paul says in verse 12 and 13. Notice his denials. Paul says in verse 12, and the audience at Philippi that would have received this letter and had it read out loud, I have not already obtained this, which is perfect knowledge and intimacy with Christ. And he also says in verse 12, I've also not already been made perfect. He denies fully knowing Christ. He denies being made perfect in his spiritual growth and holiness. And he repeats it in verse 13. Brothers, I do not consider that I have made it my own. Think about that for a moment. It's interesting. Paul is saying again and again, I have not arrived. I have not yet been made perfect. I have not yet obtained perfect intimacy and perfect knowledge and perfect obedience with regard to Christ. A denial always implies an accusation. A denial always implies an accusation. You know, this weekend, we're wrapping up the NFL draft, and I don't know if you're an NFL fan like I am, but I love watching NFL football, and oftentimes there's a lot of debates that go on about, you know, quarterbacks. Who's the GOAT? Who's the greatest of all time when it comes to quarterbacks? And Tom Brady has actually denied being the greatest of all time. But the only reason Tom Brady can deny being the greatest of all time is because people have made that accusation. Blake Bortles never has to convince anyone that he is not the greatest quarterback of all time because no one is making that accusation. And similarly here, Paul is saying again and again, I don't want you to get this twisted. I don't want you to misunderstand. I am not yet perfect. I don't have perfect intimacy with Christ. I've not yet obtained that. Secondly, I want you to consider verses 15 and 17. Paul holds himself up not as a spiritual failure at this point in his life, but really as a model to emulate. Verse 15, look how he describes himself. Let those of us who are mature think this way. Paul describes himself as spiritually mature. Very different than someone who's writing from a place of feeling like a failure and defeated. Look at verse 17. Brothers, join in imitating me. Paul invites the hearers at Philippi to examine his life and imitate him. No, Paul is not writing this passage 
encouraging us to forget what's behind from a place of spiritual weakness and defeat. No, he's writing it from a place of spiritual growth and maturity. He's not saying, forget your failures and sins that are behind, lest you become discouraged. He's saying, forget your spiritual growth and successes, if you will, that are behind, lest you become complacent. And with that as an introduction, let's dive down to verse 13, where Paul describes the Christian life, the pursuit of intimacy with Christ, the pursuit of greater obedience towards Christ as one of a runner running a race. Verse 13, he says, brothers, I do not consider it I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind. What does Paul have in mind when he says, I'm forgetting those things that are behind? Well, there's at least two things in view here. The first thing that Paul is forgetting that is behind him in this analogy of the Christian walk being a marathon or a race is he is forgetting other runners. Paul has his gaze fixed on Christ. That's where he's going. That's where his pursuit is. He's not looking over his shoulder to see how he measures up when he compares himself to other Christians. And to be sure, comparing ourselves to other Christians can be helpful at times. If it's done the right way, it can be very good. I was reminded of this a few weeks ago. Someone here on staff was sharing sort of in passing Hey, sorry, I was a little uh, late for connecting with you today. Um, there's a, there's a, a standing appointment I have, and this person on their own time spends about one hour every week getting on a conference call with other relatives to pray for his extended family. And that was a time where I felt impressed. I felt spurred on to good works. I felt as if, man, that's something to aim for. That's something to shoot for. It's something that motivated me, that inspired me. Comparisons can serve that purpose if done the right way, but more times than not, we're cautioned against comparing ourselves to other Christians. I mean, think about it. If we're running a race and we're at the front of the pack, let's just say this person that I just shared with you prays for his family regularly, Let's say that he is the strongest uh, prayer that he knows, that he doesn't know a single soul who has a more robust prayer life than himself. Well, let's just say for the sake of argument, he's at the front of the pack when it comes to that spiritual discipline. What might happen if he starts to compare himself to the other runners that are behind him? Well, if he's anything like I am, or I think many of us actually are, if we're in the lead and we see that everyone else is trailing, I don't know about you, but my tendency is to want to downshift, to be content, to be satisfied, and to feel as if, comparatively speaking, I'm in the lead. I don't really need to press on and strain forward as much anymore. Or say you're the middle of the pack, you're running this race called the Christian life, and let's stick with the example of the discipline of prayer. Let's say that you're the middle of the pack. About half the people you know have a more robust and meaningful prayer life than you, and about half the other people you know 
have a more anemic prayer life than you. The problem is I can always ignore those that are further ahead and only compare myself to those that are behind and either way end up at the same place of complacency, of wanting to relax, of wanting to take my foot off the gas. Paul forgets what's behind, meaning he is not comparing himself to other runners. He recognizes the folly in that. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 10, 12. When they measure themselves by one another and compare themselves with one another, they are without understanding. When Paul says he is forgetting that which is behind, one part that he is forgetting is how he is doing compared to other believers. But what else is Paul also forgetting? In addition to forgetting other runners, Paul is also forgetting the following. Hear me now. Paul is willfully forgetting ground already covered. Paul is running this race, and he is not looking over his shoulder to spiritual highs from the past that have grown stale. He's not looking back to watershed moments or spiritual milestones from a decade ago. He's not playing his highlight reel in his mind and becoming satisfied. Rather, he is living a life that is obsessed with knowing Christ more intimately and further closing the gap between how he's called to live and how he actually lives. When I was about 14 years old, my life was radically changed by Christ. I, I went from being sort of a blight and sort of a troublemaker at the school that I attended to being really on fire for Christ, sharing the gospel regularly. I went from being very rebellious and argumentative to being much more agreeable. And there was this marked difference, and it was sort of having an impact on many different people. And it was making such an impact that I actually was asked to go to the guidance counselor to meet with her and have a brief talk. And she was very pleasant and very respectful and a very likable person. But in essence, once she called me into her office and we started talking, she essentially said, Matt, we're so glad that you've turned over a new leaf, that you've sort of had this religious experience. It seems to really be bringing about some good changes in your life. We're pleased to see it. I'm a churchgoer, I love and believe in religion, but I want to caution you, don't become obsessed with your faith. I suppose she thinks of the Christian faith as like a throw pillow. It's a nice accessory, it adds something to the room, but don't make it the focal point. Religion has its place, but don't be obsessed. Be reasonable. Be moderate. And I wonder, how would she counsel the Apostle Paul? I think she would say, Paul, thank you for coming to the office. Uh, we here at the school district read your essay on your three goals for life. And we're frankly confused. And beyond that, we're a little concerned. We'd like to ask you, some questions and she would begin to ask she would say Paul we see that one of your three life goals at the top of the list is that you may know Christ 
we're confused here. We really don't understand. We're scratching our heads. Didn't you have an amazing encounter in your past with Christ on some Damascus road or something? Didn't you encounter him already in a very amazing and life-changing way in your past? What do you mean you still have a goal to know Christ? And I think he would say, oh yeah, I nearly forgot about that. That was an amazing game changer in my life. I was actually on the road to persecute even more Christians. I'd been a part of killing Christians, imprisoning Christians. I thought they were heretics. I thought Jesus was a false teacher. And on the way to persecuting the church, lo and behold, Jesus appeared to me. Jesus of Nazareth appeared, the one that was crucified. And instead of crushing me, which he had every right to do, he extended his hand in grace and reconciliation. He extended his love, and he made me his own. That was an incredible memory. But let me tell you something. That was merely my introduction to Jesus. That was day one of kindergarten. All that did was whet my appetite. Once you've spent time with Jesus, you can't help but stay hungry to encounter him again and again. I think she would say, Paul, it's not very reasonable. You sound obsessed. You sound like a religious fanatic. You need to rein it in a little bit here. We have another question, Paul. Paul, you said your second life goal in this essay was to, what was it, encounter the power of Christ's resurrection, that you somehow have it as a life goal to experience the miraculous power of Christ? Didn't you heal the sick already? And didn't you cast demons out of people? I've even heard rumors that a handkerchief that you would brush up against would be passed around and the sick would be healed. What do you mean you want it to happen in the future, you aspire to, or your goal is to be a part of the power of the resurrection. Haven't you seen enough power? Haven't you experienced enough miracles? And I think Paul would say, I've only seen a glimpse. I've seen some amazing things. I've seen God's power heal the sick, heal the lame, Heal the demon oppressed. But all that did was scratch the surface. Let me tell you something, guidance counselor. The power of this Jesus is so great that by the power of his word, all things were created on heaven and on earth, all things visible and invisible. And by the power of his word, all things are sustained. I'm just now getting a foggy idea of the power that my Lord possesses. She would say, Paul, have some proportion. Don't be ridiculous. When is enough enough with this Jesus thing? One more question. Paul, we're really confused, we're concerned, and we're disturbed about your third goal. Are you some sort of masochist with amnesia? Your third goal is to share in Christ's sufferings. Weren't you beaten within an inch of your life more times than you can count? Stoned and left for dead, shipwrecked, 
imprisoned repeatedly. Have you forgotten all that? And Paul might say, I've suffered some for Christ, and it was painful. But let me tell you, it helped me begin to see what Christ must have thought when he suffered unjustly. It helped me begin to understand him as a person a little bit better. And my affection for him multiplies the more I suffer for him. Because where your treasure is, there your heart is also. I'm just now getting a glimpse of what he is like and wrapping my mind around who he is. And if the cost for greater knowledge and greater understanding of Christ is suffering, then I'm willing to walk through whatever in order to better understand him. You see, Paul had tasted and seen the goodness of Christ, and he stayed ever hungry for more. His desire was insatiable. He was constantly chomping at the bit, and he had no time for strolls down memory lane. He'd forgotten what had lied behind and was straining on toward what was ahead. I've always been a beach person. Many of you know I'm from South Carolina, so I've always been a couple hour drive at most, depending on where I lived, from the coast, and the weather's a tad bit warmer there than here. That may be something that you didn't realize. So my family was a beach family growing up. We went to Garden City at least once a year, every year of my life from infancy. I'm a beach guy. Gone to the mountains here and there down south. It's nice. I was always a beach guy. Moved to New York five months ago, just now getting to a point where I can really start to explore the surrounding areas. And I had the great opportunity a few weeks ago to go to the Catskills. Not yet been to the Adirondacks. Haven't been really anywhere outside of the Capital District, but had a chance to go to the Catskills and really... For the first time, I began to see the appeal of the mountains. We stayed at a place, and at this particular place, I had several people tell me again and again, have you hiked the trail up the mountain yet? You should hike it. It's a beautiful view. At the top of this mountain, there's a tower, and it's overlooking the Catskills. Have you hiked it yet? Have you hiked it yet? Have you hiked it yet? So one day when I was there, I decided... Let's give this a shot. I'm a beach guy, but we'll give the mountains a shot here. So I walked for maybe five or ten minutes and then found the starting point of this trail. And I got to the starting point of this trail, and the trail sort of snaked around the mountain, and it kind of meandered, and you went through different narrow and wider places till you got to the top, and Something else you should know about me, I enjoy walking, I enjoy staying active, go to the gym, think I'm in decent shape. I was shocked at how much hiking up a mountain can take out of you. I was, I really was. And we got there, I was there, I was at the bottom, and I started walking up the mountain. I put my earbuds in, 
put some Dvorak on. I wanted it to be really pretty and epic, so I put on some highfalutin classical music, and I'm just there in nature going, okay, let's see what the appeal of the mountains are. I begin walking up this sort of meandering path, and about a quarter of the way, my legs start to burn. And I thought, I'm walking. This is pathetic. <laughs> kept walking, kept walking. It's a little chilly, a little windy that day. The more I walked, it seemed that the wind decided it wanted to pick up more and more. So I'm getting cold now. Legs are burning more and more by the minute. It's getting colder. It's getting windier. I'm going up higher and higher, so the air is getting a little thinner. My breathing is getting labored. I can feel my heart rate ticking up a little bit. And unsurprisingly, the further you go up that trail, the harder it gets. The more your legs burn, the colder it gets, the harder it becomes to breathe in any sort of even way. And really, I think that's very similar to the Christian life, isn't it? Sometimes the further along you go, the more difficult it becomes. It doesn't get easier. It gets more demanding, more difficult. The Christian walk again and again in Scripture is described as requiring perseverance, requiring endurance, requiring patience, tenacity. That's the Christian life. One thing I failed to mention about this trail that sort of snaked up this mountain, in addition to the leg pain and being cold and having your heart rate kind of be at an uncomfortable rhythm, about every few hundred yards, there was a gazebo. And this gazebo would have this nice bench on which you could sit and sort of take in the view from wherever you happen to be. Now, mind you, there's not just one of these along the way or two or three dotted up the entire trail up the mountain are these gazebos with these benches. And you know what's going through my head. That looks pretty good. I've covered enough ground. The view is probably pretty good from here. It can't be that much better the further I go. I'm tired. I want to sit down and rest. I'd suggest to you today that there are people in this room who in their pursuit of Christ and in their pursuit of growing to be more like him were marching for years in their past, but at some point, they sat down on one of these benches, and you're still sitting there. I believe there's somebody here today that once used to have an insatiable desire to worship with other believers on the weekend. They loved coming together and worshiping God with other believers. But over time, they've retired from the state, and they're sort of out of their routine, and 
furthermore, with their retirement, they now travel a lot. So whether they're in the capital district or at some other part of our country, worshiping with other believers on a weekly basis is really no longer a priority. I think you seem to view your pursuit of Christ like retirement. I've done enough work back there, now it's time to relax. I've saved and invested enough back there, now it's time to kick up my feet and relax. I've done enough in my pursuit of Christ and Christian living back there, and now it's time to relax. But just to be brutally honest today, you need to get up off that bench. If you're not dead, you are not done. I think there's someone else here today. You used to hunger for God's word. It was absolutely amazing. People had to pull you away from studying the scriptures. Your Bible has been dog-eared and highlighted and underscored and everything. There's notes in every uh, available margin. You've read the Bible through multiple times over, but somewhere along the way in your past, you hit a rut in your Bible reading, and you frankly found it to be boring, and you wondered to yourself, have I beaten the video game? Have I learned all there is to learn? Have I sort of arrived as a student of God's word? Do you really believe that you have plumbed the depths of God's word in a measly couple of decades? God's word is described as being different than grass or flowers that fail. God's word endures forever. Get off that bench. If you're not dead, you are not done. I think someone here today used to mourn some particular sin in their past. I think that they cried out to God to be delivered from some sin, some shame, something that identified them that they felt unable to be freed from. And over the course of time, God and his grace worked in their hearts and they drew near to the spirit and they got accountability and they pursued freedom in Christ. And lo and behold, at some point in the past, God has delivered them from some sin that they thought they would never be freed from. But unfortunately, when that deliverance came, you started thinking to yourself, I've kind of arrived morally. I'm basically an A student spiritually. You started to look at that one particular sin as a litmus test for if God was pleased with you or not. And you've come to the conclusion that since you've had victory there, you're pretty much tenured as a Christian. Get off the bench and put to death the sin in your life today like grumbling, discontentment, quick-temperedness, materialism. Put all those sins to death the same way you put that other sin to death. 
Lastly, I think there's someone here today that used to serve in some church somewhere with all that they had. They invested their time and their money and their creativity and their energy for year after year after year. And then, honestly, they got to a place of burnout. And really, they needed to take a step back, catch their breath, and rest their legs. But that was some years ago now, and they're still sitting at that gazebo on that bench on a never-ending sabbatical. Get up off that bench. If you are not dead, you are not done. I know it's hard. I know oftentimes it seemingly only gets more painful. It seems that the demands get only higher in our pursuit of knowing Christ and being made like him in our lives. But think about the goal. Think about the reward. Think about the payoff that we have in Christ. The more intimacy we have with Christ, the more joy and pleasure we will experience in this life. I love Psalm 1611. It's a beautiful verse. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence, think of Christ and being in his presence. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Why would we settle for these lesser views and these lesser joys and these lesser pleasures? That passage of scripture is either true or it's not. Either there's limitless pleasure and joy in the presence of Christ, or there isn't. And if there is, what are you doing robbing yourself of that by sitting on that bench and taking in this Bush League view? I know it gets harder and the pain increases and the difficulty intensifies but the more we will walk up that mountain in pursuit of Christ, the grander the clarity of the view becomes, the greater the beauty of Christ becomes. There are always higher heights to which we can ascend in this life because if we're not dead, we're not done Pleasures forevermore, unceasing joy, greater intimacy with Christ are ours to be had if we'll only forget what's behind and press on toward the goal in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much for your word, and we thank you that in the book of Philippians, we have this great practical instruction to shake us of our complacency and our idleness. God, I pray that you would help each of us today 
forget what's behind. Forget the good that others have said. Forget how we're doing compared to others. And to strain forward toward the goal of greater intimacy, greater knowledge, greater pleasure, and greater joy in Christ. God, if there's anyone here today that is sitting on a bench, I pray that by your spirit, you would give us the will to get up from the bench, to put one foot in front of the other, and to march up that mountain, knowing that Christ, our treasure, is surely worth the sacrifice and the cost. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen.